Lord, as we heard, as we gathered for worship right at the outset, we ask you to speak. Speak your word to us in a way that we can hear and understand. And I pray, Lord, that any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away, but may your word remain. It is in this that we hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you. Uh, it is a little bit hard to believe that it's been 12 weeks since we've gathered in person. Um, maybe more accurate is to say it's hard to believe that it's only been 12 weeks since we gathered in person. A quarter of the year has gone by, and uh, at times, I confess, it feels like more than a year. There have been a lot of ups and downs through this time for all of us, and maybe especially downs. And so I think one of the most important things for us as humans, but uh, as Christians, is that we need to have a good sense of humor. We all need to lighten up a little bit. And, and I want to just tell you that since the pandemic began, we've actually seen this happen. There's been a, a major surge in inside jokes happening all over the country. And uh, the truth is that outside jokes have gone downhill quite a bit, but um, we count our blessings. Twelve weeks since the pandemic hit. Well, it's been four weeks since we were in the book of Philippians, and what I want to do is to try and get us back up to speed, and so we're going to talk a little bit about where we've been so far. You'll remember that Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing uh, to the believers in the city of Philippi, and together these people were the first church in Europe, and Paul himself planted it. Well, at the time of his writing this letter, it's been 10 years since Paul first arrived in Philippi, and now he's writing to them from prison. And throughout this letter, perhaps more than any of the other epistles that we have in the New Testament, it is super clear how much Paul loves these people and how much they love him in return. And if there's one big idea to this letter, basically it's that Paul wants them to keep living out their faith in service to Christ just as they have been doing up till now. Well, you'll remember how in chapter 1, verse 3 to 11, that first passage we looked at, Paul describes how grateful he is for this partnership he has with the Philippian believers in the gospel. They've supported him all this time through, through the ups and through the downs. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, Paul explains, and he wants them to know how everything that's happened to him, even his imprisonment, even these false evangelists who have sprang up and are taking Paul's corner on the market, as it were, that's actually turned out for the good, for the spread of the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, Paul shares how the gospel has transformed his perspective of life and death. So much so that he believes that living is 100% about Jesus and dying is actually a gain. And then in the last passage that we looked at four weeks ago, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Paul gives us this grand vision of how Jesus Christ is reconciling the world to himself by humbling himself to the point of becoming a human and dying for us. And today, we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, and for our time together this morning, I'm going to focus my attention specifically on verses 12 to 15, and I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles and to follow along 
as you are able. I want to start by reading chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul starts with a therefore. And whenever we see a therefore, we should recognize that what he is saying now is based upon what he has said earlier, perhaps even what he just said. So to see why Paul is saying therefore, let's look at these verses right before, specifically verses 5b through 9. This is what he writes. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name that is above every name. So here, in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to obey. Obey. It is truly every American's favorite word. The highest compliment you can give someone is to tell them they're obedient. The, the popular kids in school are the ones who obey the rules. We name many of our team mascots the obeyers. It's not true, though, is it? Obedient, it's, it's actually an adjective we might use to demean someone, to say that they're mindless or weak. The popular kids in school, in fact, are the ones who break the rules. And we're much more likely to name our mascots the rebels. We Americans tend to think of authority as something to be challenged before we think of it as something to be obeyed. But here, Paul's talking about obedience. And so I think it's good for us as people to see our own predispositions to this word. Paul tells the Philippians, you need to obey. Obey who, Paul? Well, you need to obey God. Okay, well, that's not as bad as the government or our parents, so, so tell us why, Paul. Well, this takes us back to the therefore. You need to obey because Jesus Christ, in redeeming your soul, obeyed God to the point of death on a cross. Christ obeyed God. Therefore, you must obey God. And then to expand upon what he has just said, Paul gives the Philippians this really interesting imperative. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now clearly, Paul is trying to upset us because, first of all, he mentions obedience to a group of Americans, which in and of itself is enough to spark a revolution. And now he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling to a group of Protestants? Doesn't he know he's burning some bridges here? 
What's more is he, he hasn't even been talking about a theology of salvation so far. He hasn't mentioned justification or sanctification. He hasn't talked about grace and faith. And all of a sudden, he springs this on us. Is he saying that we need to obey because somehow our works are a part of our salvation? Yeah, he is. Wait, haven't you read Romans? I've read Romans. In chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or what about what Paul writes in Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So then... Paul can't possibly be saying here in Philippians that we somehow have to work for our salvation, right? Well, what Paul says here is connected to what he said earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that we as Christians should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it means taking our discipleship to Jesus not lightly. Fear and trembling is a description of one's attitude towards God, which is one of seriousness and sobriety, not arrogance, not dismissiveness, not entitlement, and not apathy. Paul is saying that if we believe the gospel that through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been redeemed from sin and from the wrath of God, then we will understand that we must be committed to living out the new way of life that the gospel brings. So if we are not committed to living out the gospel way of life, it is because we don't really believe the gospel. And if we don't really believe the gospel, then we should not expect to receive the promise of the gospel when Christ comes again. And so what this means in Paul's theology in the scriptures is that our obedience and lack thereof actually impacts our eternity. That is not the same as saying that our obedience earns us salvation. Instead, it is to say that our salvation is incomplete without obedience. While we are not saved by obedience, we are not saved without obedience. Think about it this way. We all would say that Jesus has redeemed us in order that we might become like him again. Well, if we aren't seeking to be like Jesus in our life, then we really aren't being, we aren't seeking to be redeemed, right? On Friday, I was cleaning up after dinner, and I decided to do some repairs on the chairs at our dining room table, and, and so I tightened some of the screws, but what I spent most of my time doing was taking this black Sharpie and covering up the, the nicks and the scratches so that they wouldn't show up on our black chairs. And, and after I had finished, I joked with Christy, and I said that our son Ezra would probably start writing on the chairs now that he had seen me do it. And yesterday, Christy sent me this photo while I was here preparing the sermon, and look at what Ezra is doing, writing 
on our chairs. Obedience is like this. It is like seeing what Jesus does and then doing what Jesus does. Because if we actually believe that God is who he says he is and that he's done for us, what we believe he has done, then God deserves our obedience. He expects our obedience. He was crucified for our obedience, and by sending the Holy Spirit, he is actually the one who enables us to be obedient. And that is where Paul goes next when he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obeying God is what he saved us for. He saved us from rebellion. And as we follow God through obedience, he is the one who enables us to do that very thing. And and we shouldn't miss this point. We might glaze over it, but Paul says that when God transforms our hearts to, to love the things that God loves and to obey his commandments, something happens. God gets pleasure in us. See, I, I have three children, and I, I, I love them so much. They are the best things that have ever happened to me. And I would like to think that I love them unconditionally. And yet, when my children obey my instruction, so long as it's good, when they love what is good and I can see that work happening in them and, and when they start to flourish because of it, I get so much pleasure. And this is what Paul is saying here. God takes pleasure when our salvation begins to take root. The Christian life requires obedience, period. As Jesus' brother James reminds us, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James chapter 2, verse 17. Dead faith can't save you. And dead faith cannot please God. And so we need to get serious about obedience. How many of us would say that this is something true of us, that we take obedience seriously. Let us consider that this morning. When we come to the next few verses, and I'm going to read just verse 14 right now, Paul says very simply after this, verse 13, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul has talked about obedience, and and now he gives us just one specific example of how they should be obedient to Jesus. And essentially it's this, don't complain and argue with one another. Don't complain and argue with one another. Well, we know from the context of the letter that there was a degree of disunity in the Philippian church. It, it may have been the result of the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche, as we will see later in chapter 4, or perhaps it was broader than that, but the reality is that there was complaining and arguing within this church. And Paul latched onto that as, as one thing that was a sign that they were not being obedient to Jesus. Well, why is grumbling and disputing such a problem to Paul. It sounds kind of normal, doesn't it? 
Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, where, where have we heard about God's people grumbling before? It should ring a bell for us. Our minds should go to the Old Testament, to the grumbling of the Israelites. You see, remember how God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through many signs and wonders. He crushed their oppressor. He made a covenant with them, and he promised to bring them into this new and beautiful land. And it was after saving them, after saving them, that all the Israelites could do was grumble. They were not grateful. They felt entitled. They were not living in peace. They were selfish. They were not forgiving. They held grudges. They had received provision from God, but they wanted something different. They did not respect their leaders. They rebelled against them. They had been saved by grace, but they were not obedient. Paul is no doubt alluding to the Israelites here in this passage. And therefore, what he is doing is exhorting us, the church, not to repeat the mistakes of our spiritual ancestors who were punished severely, by the way, and instead should stamp out any complaining attitude and divisive spirits in our midst. And the second reason that complaining and arguing is such a problem is that the gospel at its core is a message about reconciliation. You see, the chaos... And the destruction brought about by humanity's broken relationship with God and with others is ended through Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins, their wrongdoings against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the message. Reconciliation is the gospel. And so when believers fail to embody the message of the gospel in their lives, it means they destroy their witness of the gospel to the world because who would believe it? Brennan Manning has famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so when complaining and arguing is a part of the church, we show we can't be ministers of the gospel to the world around us because we don't even understand it for ourselves. What do we have to say to them? Living in peaceful and reconciled relationships to God and others, which, which is to say unity. That is actually how we will accomplish our vocation as Christians. And so it should not be surprising to us that this was on Jesus' mind right before he gets crucified. In his high priestly prayer for us in John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, 
Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that this world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, in you, in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Can't we understand that the effectiveness of the gospel in our lives and the effectiveness of our gospel witness to the world hinges on our unity? Can't we understand that the effectiveness of the gospel in our own lives and our gospel witness to the world hinges is tied to, is based upon our unity. And thus, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that, in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, when the gospel has penetrated our souls to the extent that we actually desire to obey God, and we actually work towards obedience in our daily lives, especially through reconciliation with one another, Paul says that we will shine as lights in the world. The NIV translates this as stars in the universe. I love that. When I was in eighth grade, I really was interested in astrology and the first thing that I learned was that it's called astronomy not astrology and it was all uphill from there I, I was fascinated by stars and planets and by the vast distances between them and by the beauty and majesty of it all and I know I'm not alone in that if you've ever had a chance to visit a dark sky city and, and get to look up at the stars of the night sky without all the pollution, the light pollution of the city, it's an amazing thing. And, and you look up at the sky and you say, that is the most beautiful black space I have ever seen. That's not what happens. You, you, you don't marvel at the darkness. You marvel on the stars. Our, our eyes are attracted to light and and light is what we all need right now. See, the message of the gospel is light. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And those who, who see that light and believe in that light will reflect that light just as the moon reflects the sun. And thus Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus was talking about us. Jesus was talking about our obedience 
to the gospel. Jesus was talking about our unity. And both of those things are lights to a dark world around us. I chose this artwork for the beginning of Ordinary Time for two reasons. Number one, because it is this image of light shining into the chaos of darkness. And number two, because it has the appearance of street art on a brick wall. And a lot of action has been happening in our streets over the last few weeks. God is calling us to be lights in the darkness of the world. He's calling us to be ministers of reconciliation in a world of division. He's calling us to be obedient followers of Christ in a world of rebels. He's calling us to be agents of good in a world of evil. How do we do that? Well, there are two things I want to suggest this morning as being particularly relevant based upon this passage and based upon our times. The first thing is this, that we need to obey God by being reconciled to one another in the church. We need to obey God by being reconciled to one another in the church. And, and yes, I'm talking about our congregation, but I'm also talking about the church as a whole. There are probably more things than ever to disagree on. We don't even agree on what's in the news whether it's true or fake. And on top of that, our society seems even less able to accept disagreement than ever before we are polarized, but it cannot be so with us. Not with the church. I'm not saying we can't have disagreements, and I'm definitely not saying that there are not disagreements important enough to break fellowship over. We are, after all, in an Anglican province which has left the Episcopal Church due to widespread heresy there. Instead, what I mean is what St. Augustine said in the 4th century, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And yet the majority of the time, I'm afraid that it seems like we just think the world can't see the petty things that go on in churches. We don't think the world can see the church hopping that characterizes so many of us who leave a church at the slightest disagreement and just find another. We don't think that the world can see how Christians perpetrate and perpetuate division and dissension in the marketplace or in politics or on your Facebook feeds. We don't think that the world can see how racially and socioeconomically divided Sunday morning is. But the world can see. The world will either see us shining as lights or as stars that have been eclipsed by our own hypocrisy. Let it be the former. We need to take seriously the call we have from God to shine a light. And I'm saying... That obedience is required in reconciliation. To keep Jesus at the center of all we say and do, to keep the main thing the main thing and to let the minor things go, to give up our own interests for the sake of others and for the gospel, that is the gospel. And the second thing that 
we need to do is we need to obey God by taking up our place as God's ministers of reconciliation in the world. We need to take up our place as God's ministers of reconciliation in the world. Some of the most profound contributions in the history of the world have been the work of reconciliation. And much of the work of reconciliation in the world is a legacy that belongs to Christians. Our brothers, our sisters, think of William Wilberforce in Britain, Corrie ten Boom in Holland and Germany, Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, Jean Rishahana in Rwanda. Right now, in this moment in our nation's history where reconciliation and repentance and forgiveness and justice are also deeply needed, what will Christians do? Will we pursue forgiveness with those we've hurt or with those who have hurt us in this congregation? Will we demonstrate empathy and understanding with those around us as we go forward? Will we bear the burdens of black and brown Americans, especially those like George Floyd, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ? Will we speak up for the inherent value of all human beings, especially those who are unvalued or undervalued in the framework of our society? Will we work for justice wherever we see the need for it, especially toward the marginalized and the poor? Will we urge against the violent destruction of property and of theft, but will we defend the peaceful demonstrators against the abuses of our government? Will we name sin where we see it, first in us, and then out there? Will we hold our leaders accountable to love what is good, to love goodness, and not just what is good for them? Will we shine a light on the gospel in a culture that so desperately needs to see Jesus? The answer to those questions has something to do with our own reconciliation. Next Sunday, we will continue our gospel and culture sermon series, and we're going to have a conversation, and I mean a conversation. Father Bob and I will be dialoguing with one another, dialoguing about justice and race. Because living faith as a local expression of Christ's body and one that is rightly striving to be multi-ethnic must be a place where we can talk with one another with love and forbearance because the blood of Jesus Christ binds us together and reconciles us. If we do not, if we who have Jesus cannot live in unity, then truly what hope does the world have? We must be a living faith and not a dead faith. But because, my brothers and sisters, we do have Jesus, because we can be reconciled, then it is, as Bill Hybels has said, that the local church is the hope of the world.
Living faith can be a part of the hope of the world. Let us pray for God's grace to be that. Let's pray. Jesus, we repent of our unreconciled hearts. And we pray that in seeing the way that you crossed the chasm of our rebellion to unite us to you, that we would not hesitate to cross the chasm of the aisle of our congregation and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would not be people who justify ourselves, but we would be justified by you. And that we would take a page out of the book of the gospel and we would do what Jesus did, and that is to humble ourselves and become obedient to you, even if it means our own death. Teach us to die to self. Teach us to die to self that we might be one with you and one with your people. Give us great encouragement in the wonder of the message of reconciliation. And let us not hide that light. Let us not put that lamp under a basket, but shine for all to see. You can do this in us, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask for the grace to be obedient in reconciliation. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.